0: 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through the end. 12 through 28. So if you have a copy of the Word, go ahead and make your way to 1 Thessalonians 5. And uh, we will read the text and then we will pray. This is what the the Apostle Paul says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Brothers and sisters, this is God's word written for our good this morning. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your people can gather this morning to... Hear your voice through the inspired scriptures to respond to your word in praise, confession, adoration, thanksgiving. And we pray now, Father, that by your grace you will speak to us. And that you, through the preaching of your word, will be at work among us. Admonishing the idle, encouraging the faint-hearted, and helping the weak. We ask these things, Father, for the name of Christ, so that Jesus will be glorified in our church this morning. Amen. Amen. Have you ever run a race that you were not sure you will be able to finish? We just had the uh, Little Rock Marathon last weekend. I don't know how many of you ran the marathon. And probably not everyone who started actually finished the event, I'm sure. But I will bet that many of those who did finish did so because they were not running alone. Now, believe me when I said I am not the type of guy that runs races for fun. I just think that's insane, actually. I don't do that. But when I do run, I definitely prefer to run with others. Why? Because I know that running is hard. And if I run by myself, I definitely quit before the first mile. And so, friends, a race is not necessarily easier when run with others, but it is a lot harder to quit when you have a friend running with you and encouraging you along the way. And I believe that's Paul's point in our passage this morning. He is encouraging us, the church, to run together. Remember what he says in verse 11. We didn't read verse 11 this morning, but just the verse before, verse 12. Paul says, In light of the imminent coming of Christ, he exhorts us to keep on encouraging one another and build one another up. In other words, Paul is saying, your salvation is near, brothers and sisters. Your salvation is near, so keep running and help one another to keep Going, Make sure that we are all standing together at the finish line. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is not a sprint, but a race, a marathon. But it is not a race meant to be run alone. In fact, it cannot be run alone. Perseverance in the faith and growth happen in connection to the people of God in connection to the life and worship of the church. And so Paul here at the end of this letter gives us five ways to encourage and build one another up as we run together towards the day of Christ. Love your pastors. Minister to the body. Worship God together. Hold fast to God's Word. And depend on the faithful work of God. Five ways to encourage and build one another up. So let's look at each one of these in turn. First we turn to verses 12 and 13 where Paul exhorts us to love our pastors. Notice first the two commands to respect and to esteem in verse 12. We need to understand these two together, friends. In in other words, you cannot have respect where there is no esteeming. What Paul is getting at is a conscious and joyful submission to the leaders of the church. And although the office is not explicitly mentioned in this passage, Paul probably has in mind the elders or pastors of the church. Notice with me the specific responsibilities that these leaders exercise here In verse 12, first, these leaders labor among you, Paul says. In other words, they fulfill a very specific role in the life of the church. Remember that Paul has already said that the work of encouraging and building up the church is the work of the congregation, of one another. But even so, there are still those who labor in the body in a specific way or role. Paul begins with this general description of the pastor's work. It is not easy, but it is labor, Paul says, literally hard work. Paul himself describes the unique hardship of pastoral ministry in 2 Corinthians 11. I don't know if you recall that text. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul lists all the hardships that he has faced in his travels. And then he says that on top of all these external difficulties, there's still the daily pressure, he says, on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Friends, that that daily pressure and anxiety for the churches is a good description of pastoral ministry. Pouring out your very life to present everyone mature in Christ at the final day, travailing for souls and families in prayer... And knowing very well that you are inadequate on your own strength to do any of this. It's a daily pressure that can only be shouldered by God's grace through the encouragement and ministry of God's people. So when Paul says respect and esteem your leaders, friends, he's he not saying just be quiet and submit. No, friends, he is say, he, he's saying love your leaders. Love them. They are laboring among you, and they won't make it unless you support their work in loving submission. So the first and general responsibility of pastors is to labor among the flock. The second responsibility is to be over you in the Lord, Paul says. The idea here is both of leading people and caring for people. Pastoral leadership in the Bible, friends, is described in in many ways. Ruling, overseeing, shepherding. But the foundational characteristic of the office is one of servanthood, serving. The primary responsibility of those in pastoral leadership is not to proclaim ourselves, Paul says, but Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So, whatever authority elders have over the congregation is a borrow authority, like a friend of mine says. It is a borrow authority. It is not inherent in the office, it comes from Christ through His Word. So that elders, along with the congregation, are under the lordship of Christ. That is why Paul here in verse 12 specifies that the authority of these leaders is in the Lord. In the Lord. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ Himself is the great shepherd of God's people. It is Christ who died for His bride. And it is Christ who rules His church by the power of His word. So those who labor among you do so as Servants of Christ. And that is actually the very reason why we should respect and esteem them. Because they serve and lead on behalf of Christ in accordance with His Word. That's their second responsibility. Their third responsibility is to admonish you. To admonish you. The idea here is to warn someone of an impending danger. And also to instruct them on the way that they should go. Because church leaders exercise their authority in the Lord, they are responsible to take the lead in admonishing God's people. So the work of pastors is to lead well and to care for souls. To lead well and care for souls. And it is because of this work, Paul says that we should, we should love our pastors, consciously submitting to their leadership with joy. Not because of their knowledge, not because of their status, not because of their position, but because of their work. They labor among you on behalf of Christ. And friends, one of the ways you can love the elders of this church well is by praying for them and for their work. As Paul says in verse 25 at the end of of the passage, he says, Brothers, pray for us. Pray for your pastors regularly. Pray that we may shepherd God's people willingly and not under compulsion, like Peter says. And pray that our work among you may be fruitful in the gospel to the glory of God in Christ. Pray that our work may be fruitful, brothers and sisters, that it may not be in vain. Now, the end of verse 13 helps us to see how lovingly submitting to our leaders actually helps us to build up the body of Christ. There's a connection there. Look there with me in verse 13. Paul writes, Be at peace among yourselves. Friends, peace is the fruit of, the, of this conscious and joyful submission to our church leaders. Loving your pastors is the rich soil, so to speak, on which all kinds of healthy fruit grows. Where there is loving submission to the leaders of the church, there will be a harvest of peace. And where there is peace... There will be an abundance of loving ministry happening among the body. And so the end of verse 13 is a helpful transition to our second point. That is to minister to the bodies. So first point, love your leaders. Second point, minister to the body. In verses 14 through 15, Paul lists... Three ways in which the church ministers or cares for one another. We admonish one another, we encourage one another, and we help one another. First, Paul instructs the church to admonish the idol. And we know from 2 Thessalonians that the idol were not simply lazy or passive members in the church. On the contrary, the idol were actively neglecting to follow the apostolic instructions that they have received from Paul. In other words, the, the point is not simply that the idol refused to work, but that they refused to obey Paul's instructions to work. They refused, in other words, to respect and to esteem highly in love those who were over them in the Lord. That is why they need to be admonished. And, and although the leaders of the church should take the initiative in admonishing the congregation, as we saw in verse 12, it is nevertheless the work of the church to admonish one another, and specifically to admonish the idol. Second, Paul instructs the church to encourage the faint-hearted. The word used here for encouraging is often used to describe the consolation of those who have suffered the death of a loved one. And if you remember, the way that Paul encourages them in chapter 4 is by instructing them concerning the resurrection of Christ. Friends, the the faint-hearted are those literally of little soul. They are those who have no strength in themselves to look to Christ by faith, and therefore they need someone else to remind them of the big realities of the gospel. You see, friends, big doctrines like the resurrection of the dead, justification by grace through faith, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, the triune nature and sovereignty of God, all all these are tools in your ministry for one another. Third, Paul instructs the church to help the weak, to help the weak. And certainly, this includes those who are physically ill, but I don't think it's limited to physical weakness only. The weak, friends, are those who need consistent and prolonged attention and care. Paul says they need help. The word help literally means the devotion of another. They need the devotion of another. That is to say, they need someone to tell them, listen, I am here with you and for you, and I will not let go of you. We started this race together and we will finish together. So let's go. Let's keep going. Now there's much more that we could say about the idol and faint-hearted and the weak, I'm sure. But Paul's point brothers and sisters, is, is not to give us mere categories of ministry needs, like three buckets that we can just throw people into these three need categories of ministry. Friends, the, the truth is that we are all in need of the ministry of the church. We are all in need of one another. I honestly believe that the greatest danger in a church like ours where we treasure the truth of God's Word, and we seek to be conformed to it in every area of life. It is that some of us may conclude that in order to fit in, we need our lives to look like a package where everything from our theology to our families and our personal lives, they all need to be tidied up and nicely put together. But friends, there's there's nothing more debilitating to your faith and growth in your walk with Christ than feeling that unless you meet a certain standard, you won't fit in among the people of God. Brothers and sisters, let me say this as clear as as I can. We are all in need of omnipotent grace. We are all in need of gospel encouragement every single day. We all need to be reminded that even when we are weak and even when our our hearts are hardened and we don't want to listen to the wise and loving counsel of one another, even then Christ is still a sufficient Savior for us, brothers and sisters. We are all broken people. None of us has graduated into the level of spirituality in which we don't need any more help or any more admonishing. So stop looking the part and acknowledge that you are a broken people in need of omnipotent grace, in need of a sufficient Savior, and that we need one another. So how do we do this? How do we we minister to one another in this way? Paul says, by being patient with them all. Being patient with them all. Friends, patience is the backbone of ministry. Caring for one another requires faithful patience. It requires the kind of faith that says, Jesus Christ has united me to His people, and therefore, I will give the rest of my life to encourage and build up the church, whatever the cost. It is a lifelong commitment that requires faithfulness and patience, friends. It is great to join a church where God's word is proclaimed, where the values and, and the statement of faith all line up with what we believe. But it is a lot harder to keep running the race together when we actually find out that we are indeed broken people together. Now, verse 15 shows us what patience actually looks like. In verse 15, Paul writes, See to it that no one repays anyone for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Friends, patient, loving, enduring ministry looks like consistently seeking to do good to others even when we are wrong. It is true that we are a redeemed people, but we are not yet a perfected people. And that means that our church is made up 100% of imperfect saints, including you and including myself. Friends, we will sin against each other. And it will require that we extend patient love and forgiveness to one another just as God has forgiven us in Christ. As application, notice what Paul exhorts the church to do in verse 26 at the end of the letter. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss, he says. By the way, kissing people for greetings is totally normal in the rest of the world, right? So if you're thrown off by the holy kiss, that's just normal. If anything, the weird thing is to high five others. They're like, what, what, what is that, you know? But it is interesting to note that every time Paul mentions this holy greeting in his letters, it is always to a church that is facing some kind of disunity or lack of peace. Greeting others with a kiss was, again, the normal practice of Paul's day. So, what is so special or holy about this greeting? What's so special about it? Well, friends, this this greeting is holy because of our communion or our common union with one another in the new covenant, in the covenant of peace, as the prophet Isaiah calls it. So that greeting one another is a practical and ongoing way in which the church is encouraged to maintain peace by upholding their covenant to one another. It is an expression of the gospel and of our mutual unity in Christ. That is what Paul is getting at, friends. If you cannot look at somebody in their eyes as you're coming through those doors and say good morning to them before you join together in worship, there is something wrong. If you cannot greet one another, there's no way you can fulfill any of the other covenant responsibilities like loving one another or praying for one another. How in the world can you patiently minister to one another if you're not at peace with one another? That's what Paul is saying. So greet one another. That's a great way to start. Ministering to one another requires that we be at peace with each other and that we seek to do good to one another with patience. That is the, the second point. The third point, friends, is worship God together in verses 16 through 18. Worship God together. It is characteristic of the people of God to regularly worship God in Christ together. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, Paul says. These verses are usually used to commend Christians in their individual walk with Christ, and I think that is a good application of this passage. By all means, Christians ought to worship God and live for the glory of Christ, not only when they gather together with God's people, but also every day as they fulfill their responsibilities at home, at work, or at play. But my my focus or emphasis this morning is on the gather worship of God's people. And Paul lists three ways in which we should worship. First, our worship should be marked by Christ's exalting joy. Rejoice, Paul writes. It is the same word he uses in the book of Romans when he says that we rejoice in our sufferings and we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It, It means to boast in God. It is the kind of boasting or rejoicing that recognizes that everything we have and everything we are is God. So that our worship should be centered on God and not on men. Friends, that, that's why we emphasize the Word of God in the gatherings of our church. Because it is in the Word that God makes Himself know. So we read God's Word, we sing God's Word, we pray God's Word, and we proclaim God's Word because God is the center of our worship. And then we respond to God's Word with joy as we rejoice in what God has done on our behalf in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ exalting joy, boasting before God. Second, our worship is marked by prayer. Pray, Paul says, We not only rejoice in God, but we are also totally dependent on Him. We are dependent on God for our very life. And we are dependent on God for the life and health of our church. And so we pray because we are a God-dependent people. And third, we give thanks. Our worship together should be marked by an ongoing expression of thanksgiving for what God has done for us in Christ. Again, that is why when we gather together as a church, we follow this pattern of hearing God's Word and responding to God's Word with confession or praise or thanksgiving. You see it, friends? Our our worship together is centered on God, is dependent on God, and it is patterned to respond to God's Word in thanksgiving. We rejoice, we pray, we give thanks. And as we scatter out throughout the week, Our lives should be modeled after this same pattern of God-centeredness. But the key, friends, is that Paul calls us to be consistent, to do this regularly. Rejoice always, he says. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. All the joy of regularly meeting with God's people To worship God in Christ. No matter our circumstances. No matter our suffering and sorrow. We keep coming back. We keep running. Friends, this is running the race well. Brothers and sisters, do, do you believe that here, even now, this morning, God is at work among His people through the ordinary means that He has appointed for us? Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is at work even so this morning in your life, in the life of our church? As we gather together, friends, we are in fact lovingly submitting to the leaders of the church as they have planned our service in such a way that Christ and His Word are exalted. And as we gather together, we are also able to minister to one another as we hear one another respond to God's Word in song and prayer. And as we sit under the preaching of God's word, the idle are admonished, the faint-hearted are encouraged, and the weak are helped. You see it, friends, the, the third way in which we encourage and build one another up is by regularly worshiping God together. This brings us to our fourth point this morning in verses 19 through 22. Hold fast to God's word. Friends, it is important to remember that we are a Spirit-dependent people. And that means that we are a Bible-dependent people. For it is the work of the Spirit, having written God's Word through the inspiration of prophets and apostles, to give us understanding of God's Word and to apply it to our hearts and to the life of our church. So that to quench the Spirit is simply to quench God's voice in His Word. The emphasis of, on these verses is on the positive command to hold fast to what is good, the same as we read in Romans 12. I think 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 actually is a very helpful passage to understand what is going on in the church at Thessalonica. Paul writes there in 2 Thessalonians 2, he says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with Him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarm, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in this way. Now friends, whatever your views on spiritual gifts are, we can all agree that at the time of Paul's writing, The gift of prophecy is a regular part of the ministry, at least in some of the churches. We read it in Romans, Corinthians, uh, 1 John, mentions. And so, obviously, we see instructions concerning prophecy in more than one book. But we should note that the emphasis of much of this instruction is oftentimes on the abuse of the gift. It is clear from many passages that this gift was supposed to be a spoken means of encouragement to the body. Of encouragement. But that is not the way that is being used in the church at Thessalonica. Rather, at least some in the church were abusing the use of this gift to speak lies, Paul says, that were troubling the church. And the problem is that by abusing this ministry... These deceivers were robbing God's people from God's word, from what is truly good. Notice again that the emphasis is on holding on to what is good. But what is this good that we are supposed to hold on to, you may ask? Well, friends, it is Paul's apostolic testimony and instruction to the church. It is what the rebellious idlers in verse 14 are refusing to follow. This is why in verse 27, at the, at the end of this letter, Paul puts the church under oath before the Lord to do what? To have his letter read to all the brothers. So, so here's the point, friends. God's people are called to hold fast to God's true word and not to the deceitful words of men. The Spirit of God inspired the authoritative testimony of prophets and apostles so that the people of God may hear the voice of God. And by all means, we want the Holy Spirit to enliven and empower our life and worship as, our, as a church. We are a Spirit-dependent people. And we want to worship according to the power of the Spirit. But the primary means to open our lives to the work of the Spirit is to give ourselves over to the Word of God. To heed His voice therein and to hold fast to it. So that's the the fourth point. Holding fast to the Word of God. We come now to our fifth and final point in verses 23 to 24. Depend on the faithful work of God. Depend on the faithful work of God. Friends, the overarching theme of the entire letter, 1 Thessalonians, is this. God is faithful to finish what He has started. So keep going. God is at work, so continue to abound more and and more in what you are already doing. Keep running the race, Paul is saying. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers and sisters, salvation belongs to the Lord. Our redemption and sanctification and perseverance is the work of God. It is God who loves us and chose us in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 4. It is God who establishes our hearts blameless in holiness. Chapter 3, verse 13. It is God who has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 9. And it is God Himself who sanctifies us completely and keeps us blameless to the end. Chapter 5, verse 23. From beginning to end, our salvation is the work of God. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And this means, brothers and sisters, that God's salvation is complete and total. In case that you have missed the point from the book of Colossians. His salvation is complete and total. We can spend a whole sermon going through these two verses. But Paul is simply trying to make the point that God's salvation is sufficient because it is complete. There's nothing Lacking, in other words. Most commentators agree that Paul is, in essence, piling up words and using sort of intensifying language to exalt the faithfulness of God's work. So, for example, the phrase he uses to describe God as the God of peace borrows from the wealth of the Old Testament, which views salvation as eschatological and final, in which in the New Testament takes the sense of the restoration of all things in Christ. That's the way that Paul uses it in Romans. Paul also piles up three nouns when describing our sanctification. He he says body, soul, and spirit. I I don't think Paul is giving us an outline on the makeup of human nature uh, in this passage but emphasizing the completeness of our sanctification he is emphasizing that our sanctification is complete and total paul uses also the, the same term or root twice uh, in different forms to describe god's work he says may the god of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul And body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two words, completely and whole, are pretty much a a, a play of words used in the same term differently. Again, highlighting the totality and completeness of our salvation. You, You see it, friends? Again, we could spend a whole sermon on this passage, but Paul is making the point that God will finish what he has started. He is faithful, and we are called to trust and depend on His faithful work. His work, His salvation is complete. So the question is where is God working? Where do we see the faithful work of God? Well, friends, the answer is in in many places. But from this text, this morning, the answer is in the life and worship of the church. We see the faithful work of God among us as we love our leaders, minister to one another, worship God together, and hold fast to His Word. That's where we see the faithful work of God. The Christian life is a race, but it is not meant to be run alone. So let us depend on the faithful work of God as we seek to encourage and build one another up until we reach the finish line together at the coming day of Christ. Until then, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are indeed a faithful God. Your work of redemption and sanctification is complete, Father. So help us to trust in You. Help us to depend upon You as we seek to minister to one another. God, we ask that You will be faithful to Your church here at Midtown Baptist Church. Help us grow, Father. And keep us blameless at the day of Jesus Christ. For His glory we pray. Amen. Dr. please stand and let's sing.